then when I went to go, um, I realized I'm going to partner with ArcView. I called up Troy and said, hey, I'm going to be in San Francisco on Thursday. It was like a Monday. He was like, I, I was just wondering if we can grab dinner. Uh, I can buy you a beer and I want to run something by you. And he's like, oh, that's great. I was just about to call you. I wanted to talk about something. I'll, how about, you know, we get meet here or here on Thursday. And I was like, great. Hung up the phone and I was like, okay, I got to get a plane ticket because I'm going to San Francisco. I go to San Francisco. I actually meet with Emily and Morgan Paxi of Poseidon, the group that I'm partnered up with now, and was pitching them this idea of the accelerator and they loved it. They wanted to work together. And I was like, okay, this is awesome. And then I go walk across town to meet Troy and um, we're sitting down. We hadn't even finished our first beer. And uh, I was like, hey, I've got this idea I want to talk to you about. And he's like, great. Actually, I want to talk to you about something. We've been thinking about starting a business accelerator at ArcView. And every time we think about it, your name comes up. And so I wanted to talk to you about that. And I was like, hold on one second. I reached down in my briefcase, pulled out the pitch deck and put it in front of him and said, I've been thinking about this too. And he sort of flipped through it and he was like, whoa. You know, we had this like moment, you know, again, taking a risk, getting out of the comfort zone uh, and timing was perfect. Um, the idea was good. Um, and so uh, that kicked off. Uh, a partnership with ArcView that lasted, gosh, like six or seven years to help launch Canopy Boulder. Welcome to Lit Up, a founder's journey, a show about the entrepreneurial pioneers of the modern cannabis industry and the organizations they're building. Each episode features the founder themselves, sharing their life's journey that inspired the entrepreneur within to create the most impactful ideas in modern cannabis. One of the hardest things for driven people to do is to learn when to adapt and persevere and when to move on. Today's guest shares a few stories about how he learned those lessons. As a young kid, he found an early passion for soccer. It wasn't talent alone though. He put in the work, hours on the field in practice. Through the sport, he learned a lot about himself. He liked to see and understand the big picture. The perfect spot to get that view was goalie. That dedication and commitment eventually turned into Olympic prep, which further led to an invite to the Ivy League to play at Brown. On senior day, his parents drove 14 hours to see their son play, only to see him sit on the bench in favor of a younger, taller freshman goalie. He was gutted. Contemplating leaving the team, he reached out to an athlete friend for guidance. The advice was simple. Talk to the coach, see what he could do needed to do to be on and in the team. Received well, he followed that guidance, did his part, and was eventually rewarded with an opportunity when the team needed him, and he succeeded. A number of years into professional life, working in the natural products industry, he was given a huge promotion from managing one line of business to 15. The workload was crushing though. Days stretch into weeks and into months. He came home every night trained, it was literally killing him. With a mortgage, wife, and two daughters, a driven person doesn't just quit. But as he noted, if you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of anyone else. For him and his family, he needed to find the right vein for him. With a background in startups, investing, and mentoring, a slight pivot from natural products to the nascent cannabis industry was his next eon. With the synergies and success that followed, it proved to be the correct choice the huge impact his company has had on the cannabis industry. Please enjoy the founder's journey of Patrick Ray, co-founder of Canopy Boulder. So uh, when I started looking at the cannabis industry back in 2013, 
um, you know, I quickly realized this was an industry full of startups, but there really wasn't a, a place for founders to go. You know, entrepreneurship can be a really lonely journey in any industry, and especially one where there's not a lot of, uh, you know, examples of success uh, in the history or the recent history to model off of. So um, we felt like when we started Canopy Boulder, there was a problem for founders uh, who needed a sort of trellis of um, relationships uh, and and energy and um, expertise to launch their businesses into the cannabis industry. And that was one of the things that we really, really uh, took into consideration when we were starting Canopy Boulder. You know, our goal, uh, you know, the, our goal was really to help create a sustainable future for the industry, a high growth, high profit, um, business friendly uh, industry. And, and we felt that we could start with companies in the early stages. We could have a big impact on the trajectory down the road, right? A little change at the beginning that can can manifest into a, a larger change in the future, and and so that's why we like we, we wanted to target the early stages. So the, the solution was the business accelerator model, and um, you know that is a proven model. Uh, TechStars, which was founded in Boulder, Colorado, uh, really pioneered a sort of intensive business accelerator program. So that was our solution for the industry, mm-hmm. and uh, where we are today. I mean, you know, we've. Uh, helped launch 115 companies, made over 130 investments in the industry. Uh, you know, we were the first investors in a number of companies that are very well known in the industry, like Work, uh, BDSA, uh, Front Range Biosciences, Pot Guide. I mean, uh, the, the list is significant. It's about, it's about 115 companies long. So, um, you know, I feel like we've had a massive impact on the industry and uh, we're really proud of our founders. That's 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 amazing, and that's really why I wanted to have you on on the show today. Because there, I mean, Keegan was actually uh, was 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 on the uh, the show as well, and we really appreciated him sharing his founder's journey. And he he did mention Canopy Boulder as, as a huge part of that. Getting into the cannabis industry, as you know, because you've mentored mm-hmm. these founders, is extremely hard. Um, and we like to dive really deep and find out where those found how those founders became those people that want to do something that is just so hard. So as always with every founder's journey, we throw it back to the beginning and ask about your family growing up. Where did you grow up? Mom and dad, what did they do? Um, you know, siblings, you know, where was where was home when you were well, when, when young Patrick was started? <laughs> <laughs> well, I grew up, I was born in Milwaukee and we moved to uh, southern Indiana when I was really young. So I kind of grew up surrounded by cornfields in a small town on the banks of the Ohio River in southwest Indiana, a town called Newburgh, and um, was very happy there. My father, uh, through his entire career, worked for one company, a company called Alcoa. So, D- different you know, world. A, yeah, totally different world, different time, yeah. and, and, and not at all something that would like inspire somebody to be an entrepreneur. Uh, to sort of have that experience, but um, what was what, you know, what, was, what, what did mom do? Uh, mom took care of me and my three sisters. So I've, uh, I'm sort of an upper middle child, one older, two younger sisters, and she's kind of a super mom. You know, she did it all. Uh, as my dad was really going after his career, um, you know, he was an engineer who got into sales, who got into management, the quality, and he ended up at the end of his career working in Russia and in Saudi Arabia. So like, you know, he's just a tough son of a bitch and uh, he'll take on any challenge that you, you give him and uh, he'll do it really, he'll execute really, really well. 
Um, super intelligent, super hardworking guy. Um, so yeah, uh, you, you know, got a lot of your work Midwest, ethic from from him. Well, yeah, there's some some uh, nature and some nurture there too. I mean, I remember him uh, ordering me outside to go for a run in the snow uh, when I was young. I was I was a very competitive soccer player and and you know showed some some talent. And, uh, he realized that, you know, talent wasn't just going to carry, you know, you know, me to success. So, uh, yeah, there were some really hard, uh, lessons learned, but I appreciate all of them. And it sort of, uh, you know, it teaches you what you're capable of doing. So before um, 30 days with a seal, there was your father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and he's still, he's, he still is super active and, you know, he comes out and visits and, you know, breaks the lawn and does it again before he leaves. You know, the guy like, you know, and I'm similar. Uh, I just don't like to be bored or sit still for too long. Um, they just, you know, I get antsy. So, um, yeah, a little bit of nature and nurture there. I like that. I like that. When you were, um, when you were growing up, what were you, you mentioned soccer, but, uh, like what were you getting into and what were your siblings getting into? Well, you know, fortunately where we lived, it was one of those neighborhoods, uh, like kind of like where we live now where the, you know, kids can just go outside and experience, you know, life on their own schedule. Um, there weren't a lot of like play, there weren't any play dates, uh, because, you know, it was like, well, just go see if Mike wants to play, you know, take, get on your bike and get on the street. So we were, uh, surrounded by cornfields and forests. And, you know, I spent a lot of time climbing through down trees, falls, and, you know, just being a kid. Um, but I played a lot of soccer and that was sort of where, as I got, you know, 10, 11, 12, it really started to focus my energy. And I leaned in hard. I mean, I was, uh, you know, when I was a kid, my, my parents were, you know, dealing with a bunch of kids and their schedules. And often I would be, you know, the one who they drop off at the soccer field with a bottle of water, some sunscreen and a soccer ball, uh, without anybody within miles and miles of this place. And they just say, you know, we'll see you in a couple hours, uh, because they knew I would just kick the ball and run around and just wear myself out. Uh, and you know, that was sort of make your own, uh, entertainment kind of life back then. And, and, uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, you, you sort of no. I, the other thing was I didn't have any other kids that, that were that dedicated to the sport that wanted to just be left in a field with a soccer ball and, tr you know, work on the skills that they'd been taught in practice. So I was very focused. What was the passion that was there that like, it just, what resonated with you about soccer? Well, I, I think that, um, unlike other sports in soccer, I showed, some natural talent. And, you know, I was the kid who, when I was young, they put me a center forward for one half and goalkeeper the second half. And I, you know, when all the kids were kind of scrumming together, I was, I was like, well, I'm not going to get the ball that way. And it all, it always pops out somewhere. So I'm going to stay on the edges, get that ball, go straight to the goal and put it in. And so I sort of architected this, uh, you know, plan for each game. And so I would, in the first half, I'd try to score a lot of goals and then I get in the I'd play goalkeeper in the second half and I just try to keep, so, you know, like I, I sort of architected a plan for us to win. And fortunately the coaches would go with it. Um, Were you captain or you're like, you just like, I'm going to make myself captain, even if I'm not captain. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, I, even then, I mean, I don't, I think we probably had rotating captains and that probably meant that, you know, you brought the orange slices to the game uh, that, you know, that days, but you know, when, when things got competitive around the age of 13, I was, you know, I, I realized like I wasn't, going to be a great goalkeeper or forward. So I was going to be a goalkeeper and it was just sort of like a lack of fear, you know, kick the ball as hard as you can at me. 
and I'll take it on the chin and I'll do what's necessary to, you know, preserve the game. And also I enjoyed the aspect of sort of being a field general, you know, um, or like a field captain, right. Where you're, you know, Matt, you're, 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 you got to see the whole field. You got to take in all everything that's happening and direct people to places and think ahead to what could happen and make sure that people are in the right positions. And I had sort of like a good spatial awareness and planning gene, I guess, um, for that to happen. And, um, yeah, it ended up going really well. I got into, uh, you know, Olympic development program, uh, played very competitively and ultimately it got me, uh, it, it carried on with me through our, the moves that our family made to new schools and new cities and towns and teams. It was always sort of a, like a way for me to have an identity or to create my own new identity with new people. And ultimately it got me into college, you know? Uh, yeah, it was, it was awesome. You had noted that you moved around a lot, like, you know, on like some of the research I was doing, like um, Indiana, Chicago, Tennessee, mm-hmm. Rhode Island, San Diego, mm-hmm. and, and now you're in Boulder. Like, did you use soccer as a, as a great way, as a continuing line, as part of your identity to like, here's how I implement myself into these new communities? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it ended up working out because as a goalkeeper, I, I don't know if, if anybody's listening that plays has ever played soccer. And as they get older and older, you know, you find somebody who's like a goalkeeper and you're like, Hey, do you want to play for our team? Right. So there was always the, the need for that position, no matter where I went. And it was always something I could get out on the field and pretty much play with most everybody, you know, in any position, you know, because I sort of played at a really high level kind of you know knew what needed to be done in almost every position but you know when you're a goalkeeper you're you're, you're like you know everybody wants you on their team yeah <laughs> like a bow person in sailing but yeah, yeah, totally. yeah you, always, you always need that person yeah, yeah. you had mentioned it got you into college though so mm-hmm. tell me about that story well yeah it was uh i always had a dream of going and playing at uh the university of indiana because when I lived in Indiana, we'd go up and watch, uh, you know, this college annual college tournament that they would have there, like an early season tournament, and attract some really good players and teams at the Division One college level. And I sort of was like, you know, I saw that and I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. And so, uh, you know, a lot of my training and work um, and efforts were put into achieving that goal. Um, so yeah, I'd go to camps, I would play on the most competitive teams. Anytime I'd have a chance to play, I would do it. You know, it was like almost, it was almost a little bit too much. Um, I was very, very focused on it, but it all paid off and it, it it paid off in a way that I didn't expect. You know, I was at a camp and there was a coach there and he saw me training and then, um, he called, uh, you know, like a couple months later and said, Hey, you know, would you like to come? and apply and maybe play at Brown University. And I was just like blown away with the opportunity. You weren't even thinking of the Ivy Leagues, were you? I I had a dream, but I didn't think that I was going to be able to get there. So I was trying to be a little more realistic. Um, but back then, this was in the early 90s. There wasn't the sort of same digital infrastructure and you know ways to kind of get yourself in front of coaches' profiles and video footage. I mean, we were making VHS tapes. And then making copies and mailing these things off in manila folders. I mean, it was pretty analog. At least it wasn't Betamax, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, it ended up, it was, I was very lucky to go to that camp for that coach to see me, um, to take an interest and, you know, pull me aside and put me through some of his own paces 
along with another player who was on the Olympic team, another goalkeeper oh, wow. who was my size on the Olympic team, who didn't have the grades to get into Brown. Fortunately, I just barely did and got in. And, you know, I'm forever grateful for my parents for putting me in that position. And then, you know, the coach taking notice and, you know, things, I guess, just work out for reasons. I'm assuming your parents were quite thrilled with it and quite happy to help out with, uh, with that opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it was my, I asked my dad, he, I was like, I got the acceptance letter and he's, I was like, dad, do you think I should do this? And he was like, well, uh, I think you'd be an idiot if you said no. So I think that's a, you know, hopefully that's all you need to hear from me. I was like, yeah, got it. Got it. Got it. Uh, we're going, we're going to Brown. Are you, are you the kind of guy that makes like a good bad list? I'm like, I'm just kind of curious what was on the bad list. that it's like not close to home, but if that is even a bad, yeah. <laughs> probably as a kid, you're that like, was, yes, let's get out of here. Yeah. I was ready for my independence and I, I, I visited Brown and had a great time and already made some great friendships with players there and just sort of fell in love with the concept of moving from East Tennessee, where we lived at the time, my parents still live there to Providence, Rhode Island, and just diving in and seizing the opportunity, which was, you know, I think that's maybe like a theme for me is, um, you know, when the opportunities present themselves, you've just got to, you know, go just for it, yes. you know, like the, there's just say yes, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and bad things will happen. Tough things will happen, but you know, um, you learn a lesson from gosh, it. you know, life's short. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, sure. yeah, especially with Brown. So, um, mm -hmm. what was your, what was your time like at Brown? Uh, I know what you do right now, but like one of your majors, yeah. I was actually kind of fascinated about. So I want to hear the story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I spent a lot of time in the library, mm -hmm. right? Because I was surrounded by all these people that were valedictorians of their classes and, you know, just, it was incredible. And it was an incredible environment to be in with so many, so many hyper-intelligent, smart, already accomplished people that you knew, like, you just be like, wow, this person's going to be somebody special. And and now it's great to see I'm 45 to see what all, all of my classmates have done and great things they've done to sort of impact the world and their, the, the you know, the things that they do. Um, but I spent a lot of time in the library because I just didn't, things didn't come as naturally. I may probably have some sort of weird learning disability that I'm not, was never diagnosed. So the way that I dealt with that was that I went, you know, my life was very regimented and I would, you know, after practice every day, um, we go eat dinner at the dining hall and I just go straight to the library just, just work until nine, 10 o'clock. So I just, I mean, we'd have fun on the weekends, but my life, my college life was very different than a lot of my friends who are like, yeah, I was hanging out and we were doing stuff in the dorm and like, we go to these, go on trips. And I, I you know, I was very regimented because I ended up doing a double major at Brown, you know, talking about seize the opportunity. Yeah. One, one major wasn't enough. So I was going to do two. Let's, let's make it just a um, little bit harder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I loved sciences and I, I really enjoyed my, uh, intro to geology class my freshman year. The professor was awful, but I loved the material. And so for me, I was like, okay, well, if I can survive this guy's class and just still have a passion and interest in all the things that, make up the the earth and the biological record and chemistry uh, chemical uh, uh, crystalline structures uh you know uh what I, was then, it that resonated then, with yeah, you about that here. like i know there's always it's some could be hard to describe but like what was it yeah. like at least with hindsight having some knowledge there well i you know i've done personality tests now um and my personality type is the architect Right. So I love to sort of figure things out and so that they make sense. It's not quite an engineer, but it's sort of like, 
you know, taking all sorts of different points of data and, and trying to make sense of them. That's really what geology is about, right? You're looking at the earth and all the different, the strikes and dips of different rock structures over a large land mass. Then you're trying to figure out what happened in, in over time, right? So um, it's a lot of fun. It's very challenging. It's a great, uh, if you want to get an understanding of all the different sciences, I mean, I take physics classes, math, uh, chemistry, biology, um, you know, and geology classes. So it was a great sort of science review. Um, but I knew that I didn't want to go work for an oil company nor become a professor. I enjoyed the idea of teaching, which I've always enjoyed uh, educating. You could be and, a trail guide in, in you know, in, yeah. in, uh, in well, the Grand Canyon. I mean. <laughs> right. And, and in fact, like we got to part of the, the course study was a field study. So we got to go down the Grand Canyon that's uh, one summer and go up all the side canyons with these, you know, these uh, professors from uh, th that were that was where they studied. And you're getting a Ph.D. tour at that point, too. It's not just a oh, 10 yeah. cent tour. You're getting deep. <laughs> so anyway, like it was the sciences were really challenging and, and motivating and sort of like, uh, you know, intellectually, it was very difficult. Um but I knew that I needed to do something else. It spoke to your personality. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah. I wanted the the, the vein. Um, but then uh, there was a, and Brown doesn't have like a classic business degree, but they had this degree, it was called organizational and behavior management. Organizations and behavior management. So it was like this, this sort of quasi-business degree where you took some econ, um, some, you know, a couple of courses where you studied Harvard Business uh, School case studies. And so I leaned into that and uh, ended up getting two degrees from Brown in four years. And um, while playing, you know, having a full load of athletic activities um, in season and off season. You were on the soccer team. You played goalie at, at Brown. Yeah. And we were a good team too. Yeah. You had a pretty interesting story about that, which, uh, which I read up on. Do you want to, yeah. I'd love to cue it up, but yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we 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 were a pretty accomplished team. Uh, at one point, we were in the I think we were ranked fourth in the country. We would, you know, fly all over all over the country to play top teams. And the Ivy League, um, they had a uh, automatic for the winner of the Ivy League, uh, automatically got into the NCAA tournament. So that was always the big goal. Um, and I, you know, my I played for four years. Um, there was a lot of attrition on the team. There were two of us in my senior class that we're still on the team in the, in the, in the, in the recruiting class, mm -hmm. of, I think 13, wow. so went from 13 to two. And, um, we had a coaching change, uh, in the middle of, uh, my time there and, and me and the new coach sort of butted heads, you know, young, dumb, you know, kid. And he was like a young, aggressive coach and wanted to make his mark. And so we we're both probably very similar and, uh, butted heads, um, as I was going into my senior year, um, they brought in a, a new recruit goalkeeper, which made sense. And he was, I'm like five, nine, five, 10. He was like six, two, and, uh, just, you know, the super incredible talent. And, um, he started over me, uh, which was really hard, uh, to have a freshman start over you. So that was like a big ego blow. Um, when my parents came up for parents weekend, I wasn't playing. I mean, it was like Oof. an emotional thing, right. Um, and my parents weren't nearby, right? Yeah. They were like a 14 hour drive away. So that was, there was a lot of like sense of, um, you know, failure there. Um, and it wasn't something you could hide. It was right there. You're on the sidelines. Somebody else is in your position. And so it was really tough. And I, um, 
I sort of like, okay, it's my senior year. Like I'm not playing, like, is this the right thing for me to do? And I was taking a walk back from the library, with one of my best friends who was the captain of the swim team and, and just sort of, you know, think telling him, I think I'm going to just like, you know, quit the team. And he sort of pulled me aside and said, no way you're not going to do that. Like, and he gave me a pep talk and reframed it. Uh, the whole situation, uh, which is so helpful, right. To have, you know, friends, peers help you deal with things um, that are so hard. And we all have hard moments. And so we need that network. But he, he reframed it in, in a way that he said, look, you know, make the most of it. Like, you know, go to go, go to the coach, like get them off after practice and just say, look, what, you know, what do I need to do to make this situation better? And it was like, he just unlocked, he unlocked that, that sort of obvious, you know, um, opportunity for me and, and gave me the sort of confidence to go have that conversation so i did the coach was like thank you so much you know this is what i want you to do i want you to be the leader you are i want you to be you know funny i want you to raise the spirits of the team the team needs that we're having a tough go and so i did that I worked on some skills like i you know just tried to lift the spirits of the team a bit and um you do what you can you can't grow well. taller you're not going to be. Yeah, I can't grow taller. You know, this kid is. You're not going to be talent. Six, six inches taller, five inches taller. What can you do? Yeah, so I did what I could do, and um, you know, uh, a couple games later, that freshman goalkeeper he cracked. He had moments. He, he just, you know, he just didn't have the, you know, the experience, and he had a couple bad games, and the coach threw me in. Oh. Um, from that game, we went undefeated. We won the Ivy League tournament. We had a playoff. Um, I played, you know, I have, I got in that flow state and, um, you know, I still talk about that game with my, my one teammate, you know, who was left and my coaches, whenever we see each other, we're like, remember that game? And it was totally the flow state where I, you know, I, I, I remember some things, but I don't remember most of the game except key moments. Like, um, you know, whoever's been, if anybody's ever been in that, that mindset, they know what I'm talking about. And uh, we won the Ivy League championship. We went into the uh, NCAA tournament, and this is a big game. You know, played St. John's, like real, you know, real hard men soccer team, in New York City. And I remember uh, to to like bring it back. Uh, the last goal scored on me in my college career was a bicycle kick that went like it went between my legs. So it was like a bicycle kick, nutmeg combo. And like, I'm like, well, I guess, I guess that's the way it's going to end. It's going to be the way it's going to end. So, you know, you can still laugh about it today. It was kind of <laughs> tough when it happened, but um, you know, like it's, it's, it's fun. And I have great memories and it was real character building experience for me. Like you can be as low as your lowest lows and there's always a path out. Right. I mean, it's going to happen to everybody. You don't know success until you learn defeat. So like you getting shelved right there really was just, you know, like sideline right there really just allowed you to experience that and, and grow beyond that. So that's, that's an amazing story. Yeah. And it, it also, it also made me really appreciate and go to friends mm -hmm. and mentors, peers, and, and be like vulnerable and say, look, I don't got this. Like, wh what am I supposed to do? And, and I think that's carried on for me quite a long time. I had a, a boss who was hiring me or moving me from one position to another. He said, what I love about you is you're not afraid to be a novice and you're not afraid to like, you know, walk into a room and be the, the, the dumbest guy in the room with the least experience. And then, you know, that doesn't affect you. Um, you know, and I, it's true. I don't, I love, I like those moments because yeah. like, 
you know, you can only get better. Yeah. And be honest <laughs> with people about it too. Like, you know, own yeah. it, own it. Let's move in. Yeah. And that's how you're going to I really learn. don't understand this. I, I, yeah. Really is yeah, very it's welcoming fun. when people come and like, I don't know what's going on. Let me show you. Let me help you out here. Uh, it's great. Yeah. So yeah. that's your senior year. You had a few other things going mm-hmm. on your senior year as well. Um, you almost became a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was thinking like, okay, I, you know, I, I know soccer, I coach soccer. I have this science degree. I'll go be a teacher um, at a private school. And that seemed like, you know, I was in the Northeast. This is something that a lot of people did. I kind of was excited to have that experience. I went on a bunch of interviews, um, but I had this, you know, soccer was a fall sport. So I had the spring semester where I didn't have anything to do. And I was kind of lost. I was a teaching assistant for one of those Harvard business school case study courses. And the professor said he had some internships if any of our students wanted them. And when I was having a TA meeting and I went to him, I said, Hey, you know, I'm actually looking for one. So he connected me with a group that, uh, four newly minted MBAs, uh, from like Harvard and Stanford and Penn, you know, these guys are backed by some, you know, millionaire who were starting a little venture capital firm and investment bank. So I went to be an intern there. So I started working, um, before I even graduated. Quite serendipitously. Um, well, I also didn't, yeah. I had a bunch of student loans and I was like, okay, how am I going to pay these things off? Uh, you know, I didn't have like a trust fund, like so many of my other classmates or like, you know, like, oh, we're just going to go travel for a year. And I was like, I don't have any money to do that. So, you know, pretty, pretty meager. Uh, You're quite pragmatic there. about um, what we have to do next. Yeah. So anyway, and that was, that was a great experience. I mean, to, to, you know, my first job was at a startup. Mm-hmm. But it was a startup in the financial services industry. So, I mean, looking back now, um, I think that experience probably enabled me to say, yeah, it's possible to start a business accelerator. And yeah, it's possible to join up with others and launch a fund. Like, you know, uh, at least you get to have a hand in how thing, something's created and you don't just go in and then have to fit, be a gear in the machinery. Um, you can actually architect uh, the engine. Yeah, that really spoke probably to your architect nature of like, here's how we're building the business and then let's build mm-hmm. the product after that point. So mm-hmm. what? how did that evolve from there? So you were working with them for a bit and you know, I know eventually you got into natural product industry for a very long yeah. time. Well, this, this financial services firm, uh, the boutique investment bank and venture capital firm, they were focused on the natural products industry. And I'd always been a health nut. I worked at a gym, like cleaning machines and making people, making sure people didn't hurt themselves. Um, and so I was always like this fitness fanatic and I still kind of am. Um, so it was a good pairing because I was interested in nutrition and health and wellness. And, and that was like, you know, throw you into the deep end. We were immediately doing sell side. M&A, uh, big consulting projects for companies like Bayer. Um, so it was like it was like four newly minted MBAs and me. And I was probably the worst financial analyst they ever hired. However, I'm you know still close with all of those guys and uh, learned the value of relationships. But um, they had a portfolio company in San Diego, and here I am in like New England, you know, Providence, Rhode Island, and um, this opportunity to go figure out this business that they'd invested in and were in control of in San Diego. And I was like, oh yeah, I'll I'll do that. You know, I've always wanted to go live in San Diego, so. Uh, I was charged with going out and writing the book, the memorandum, the, the offering memorandum, which is a, a thing that investment analysts used to do. And, um, you know, just had a real great connection with the founder there. Um, 
we ended up selling that company and there was an earnout. There was a three-year earnout with a one-year accelerator. So, you know, there's a price for the business. And then if they achieve certain performance goals and sales, I think it was, then there was another payment. And so they were all sort of scratching their heads on how they're going to do this. And I said, I had an idea, pitched it to everybody. Um, they said, all right, let's do it. And I ended up staying, essentially prolonging my stay in San Diego, which is what I really wanted to do so I could surf more, which was, that was the thing. I love the ulterior motive. It's fantastic. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> so my life became like, you know, working, uh, surfing, uh, drinking beer, uh, sleeping and hanging out with my friends. And that was my whole life. Uh, so every weekend I was going in uh, one, maybe two days and writing uh, market research reports. So we launched that and hit that one year trigger for the earnout, um, exceeded the expectations. It all worked out for everybody. So it's helped you get there? Yeah. 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 That was what did it. I mean, you know, it was like we, we grew the business significantly by adding, taking sort of assets business intelligence articles, data that we already had and putting them into a market research report. And it was like a small company too. There was like five of us. So literally I was in printing off the report on paper, like back in the day comb, yeah, on paper <laughs> with a comb binder, like putting the comb, well, punching holes, getting the covers, like comb binding it. And then we would, um, we would take a, every Wednesday or whatever, we'd get together in the border and we'd put these things in packages and label them and stack them and somebody would take them to the post office. Wow. Like, so it was very like hands-on startup-y. So it was like and, going from one financial startup to a business startup. Yeah. That was the life. And for being in such a small firm, you had like, you were responsible for like a pizza slice of, of their revenue there. Um, well, that was nice too. You know, I had great people. It was a great culture, but you had real responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, every month we had an issue that had to go out. It was my job to do a certain number of things. And if I didn't do them, you know, we I had like a team of four people, other people that I was working with that would like look at me and be like, what's going yeah. on? So the responsibility was real. And unfortunately, I had, you know, great colleagues and managers who are, you know, I still look back on those days. That that was a great time in my life and to have real responsibility and be challenged and have people look at you even at a very young age and say, you know, Hey, this is your job. You you, you need to do this. And if we don't, you don't do it. We don't get to send out an issue. And and that's a big deal, (laughs) which was still a print issue, right? It was old. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You can't do it to like the last minute and be like 1159 hit publish. (laughs) <laughs> oh man, it was it was real. We had to like print things off and like with glue, put, glue the charts on to go to a printing press oh, wow. company. That was, oh, it was crazy. That's that's so interesting. Yeah. What time frame was that? Like we're probably what the late nineties ish. Yep. Yeah, that was like ninety eight, ninety nine. Huh? Yeah, yeah. It was it was real. I mean, it was uh, all hands on deck kind of approach, and I, that's how I've always, you know, been. You know, that's how I was taught. Mm-hmm. Like even with that, you know boutique investment bank there was five of yeah. us it says all hands on deck all the time and you know i love that i mean i don't want to be like a small gear and a large machine i want to have you know a fewer number of gears uh working together very efficiently getting things done that's just you know where i bring in high caliber people and then let's execute right there so yeah. what was it san diego was it the natural products industry like what kept you with that for 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 some time because you as you evolved Yeah. Well, I loved being in San Diego and I was there for six years, but I was getting, you know, I was starting to look around and 
see uh, that I needed to be challenged a bit more. I was kind of feeling that itch. It'd been six years and that'll be a theme here. Um, so I started applying for business schools. Um, the division head in Boulder, Colorado, where I live now, um, he had said, hey, if you ever think about leaving, let us know first. So I did. And they were like, no, 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 no. We're going to have, we're going to have you uh, come out to Boulder. And we're going to have you run our uh, digital media business of this uh, B2B media company. I was like, okay. So um, good timing. Uh, wanted to mix it up, moved out to Boulder and they gave me one P&L, uh, one little business unit. And then uh, like way too fast, I went from one to like 13 or 14 and like having 40 people, 40, 50 people report to me and running half the business. It was you know, like another the fire serious trial by fire. Yeah, totally. And I wasn't, I didn't have the ability to do it, but I guess they were crazy enough for whatever they, they thought I could. And, and that was an incredible learning experience because I went from like a small company mm -hmm. to running a big part of a medium sized business. So that was good. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was a lot. And um, it really it wore on me. Just to paint a picture, though, like what were you doing there? Like when you at least originally started there? Yeah. So it was a it was a B two B media business in the natural products industry. We had conferences, we had publications, um, we had websites, we had research a research division that did consulting, and um, I kind of had a hand in a lot of a lot of different things. So it was just it was a lot. It was a great environment. The people were awesome. But it escalated very um, quickly. It escalated really quickly and probably faster than I was capable of handling because this was, you know, I moved out to Boulder when I was like, I think 29. And so over the next four or five years, it was just really quick. And, um, you know, we were owned by a private equity company. We were the cash cow of the greater business that we were a part of. So the expectations were immense. I mean, I was, I was saying before the call, mm -hmm. like our budgeting cycle would start in July. Then it coincided with the conference that I was supposed to chair at age like 32 with 400 CEOs from the nutrition industry. And I'm, you know, trying to juggle all these things and they're asking for, you know, budgets uh, that won't go into effect for another five, six months. And you're like, I gotta, I gotta finish um, my slide deck here. Like I'm supposed to present. I know. Yeah. No, literally yeah. I'd be working on my introductory remarks as, you know, co-chair of the event. And uh, we had a great team and that was awesome, but it was a lot of pressure and it definitely wore on me over the years to a point where I just sort of, you know, I, there was a period um, where I was just really low yeah. and, um, you know, I'd come home and had, uh, you know, I had two kids, mm -hmm. wife, dog, mortgage, all that stuff, which was awesome. Um, but I uh, come home and I'd be like, that was the worst day ever. And then I'd wake up the next day and be like, I don't know if I can do this. And I plowed through that for weeks, um, maybe even months of just that, that, that deep darkness of just, you know, you have a responsibility to your family to, to be there and you've made a commitment and you're not somebody who really backs down rather quickly or easily. Yeah. I didn't really want to shy away from challenge, but I, you know, it, it, after a while, you know, like talking to some of my friends and mentors, they were just like, look, you know, there's also this element where you know, it was very clear. And I think this is a good thing for people to hear is like, when you don't want your boss's job, if you're working in an organization, you should like, you should really think about where you are. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you're good, it's a natural trajectory, right? Um, and if you can't find like a job in the organization that you want, you should really be thinking about 
your next move to somewhere else. So I'd always had the uh, entrepreneurial itch um, and it needed to be scratched. I was at that age where if I didn't scratch it, it might not, you know, happen. I was, you know, with a wife and two kids and a mortgage, I couldn't think of a better time to, 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 to start something, uh, to take a, take a bold leap and also in a depressed, low energy state of like, this is not where my life should be. Yeah. At least professionally. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, if you're, when you're that low, I mean, you need to make a change. So, um, and, uh, so I left. What was that spark moment that when you, um, what was that break moment of like, listen, this has gone on for too long. Like I just, I need to do anything else besides this. I remember it. It was like a late night and I just like standing in the bedroom talking to my wife. Like, I just, you know, just, you know, I can't do this. Like it's, I'm, I, it's, it's, it's gotta end. And, um, unfortunately it did soon after, you know, it, it was it needed to happen. I, I got out of that job and, you know, um, went out and did some consulting, mm-hmm. you know, I'd, I'd, again, I'd run this, I'd been sort of the guy, at the conference of the trade show who delivers the state of the industry presentation and, you know, paid to be the smartest guy in the room about all things in the industry. And I, you know, spent whatever, like 15 years uh, as an analyst and researcher and speaker and writer um, and business manager in that industry. So um, it was a big, you know, move. And I had a lot of people ask me, what, 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 why are you leaving? This is, you know, this is, why would you do this? Why would you leave? And, you know, um, but I ended up having a lot of relationships and got consulting projects that bridged me for a year until one of the CEOs that used to come to our retreat, um, was out in Boulder and say, like, let's go grab a beer, sat down and he said, Hey, what do you think about this new, this cannabis industry? And I told him, he said, well, what would you do? And if you were going to start something, and I kind of described an investment fund and business intelligence business. And um, he said, great, let's do it. I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> and uh, Beyond the Nike ad, like what is what is that next step? And it, what, yeah, what time frame yeah. were you on this? Like your early 2010s, like 20... This is 20, 2013. Okay. Yeah. So it was around July, August of 2013. Um, so... Uh, So that started uh, an effort to dive into the cannabis industry that lasted about a year of deep due diligence. uh, Where did that meeting people? Where did that idea come from that you had pitched him? Well, the the company that I worked at in the nutrition industry, um, my first job, they were a little boutique shop. Um, They made investments into the infrastructure of the nutrition industry and uh, you know, the nutrition industry, you know, there's a subcomponent of it, the supplement industry, and the herb subcomponent of that is herbs and botanicals, very similar to the cannabis industry. Um, awesome. You know, it's plant medicine. Um, people are very passionate about it. It's uh, the research and the evidence is anecdotal and observational, not double blind placebo controlled trials. Um, you know, it's underregulated or overregulated, depending on who you talk to and when. So I was comfortable with that you know, dynamic, entrepreneurial, edgy, more edgy business environment. So yeah, the cannabis industry wasn't too daunting. Cannabis wasn't a new thing to you. I mean, obviously you lived in, you lived in Boulder, you know, you went to college, um, you know, like those things, those things happen. Like what were some of your thoughts on cannabis at the time? Were you you using it recreationally or once in a while? Like, where were you at with your, your own personal use? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, you know, I experimented in college, but nothing serious. I mean, I definitely enjoyed it and always was like, why am I drinking beer when, you know, this seems so much better. And, uh, but, um, 
because it was illegal, I just didn't, you know, have a lot of access to yeah. it. Um, in Boulder, I got into cycling and I was riding my bike a lot. I was working really hard and a lot of stress in the job and I started to get sick. And there was a year where I got um, prescribed antibiotics about 10 times in a year. That's and I had my annual checkup and doc was like, oh, hmm, oh what's going on here? And so we started to try to figure out what the problem was. Ultimately, it ended up being that I wasn't getting enough sleep. And in my body, just I was driving my body too hard and getting sick. And um, so... I was on a bike ride with one of my buddies and I was telling him about, you know, the doctor prescribing me sleeping pills and how they worked. And now I hadn't been sick. And he's like, you don't need Ambien. You need an Indica. And I remember saying to him, like, what's an Indica? And um, he was like, just you wait. And the next weekend he came with a little, uh, like, you know, it used to be like a little uh, plastic, um, almost like photo film container yeah. uh, with an Indica. And uh, he's like, figure, you'll figure it out. And I tried it in the garage after everybody was asleep and I slept like a baby. And um, it sort of changed my life in terms of my health and wellness. Um, so that was like a big one for me. So I was already sort of mentally there. And you're open to it because it's a natural product, right? It's a plant. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was preferred to for me to the pharmaceutical um, options, which I didn't really like and didn't like the idea of becoming hooked on those. So um, yeah, it's been one of those things like I'm, you know, from that day forward, I was an Indica guy and, um, you know, I got plenty of energy. I don't need more. I don't need a sativa. Um, I need an Indica to, get to bring get it to down. where you need to be. So that was your spark moment with, you know, mm -hmm. you know, with this person and you were working through this, you said that earlier, like for about a year, mm -hmm. when was that decision moment of like, Hey, like this is what our plan is. This is what the vision is. I see this. Yeah. Let's go in. Yeah. So I'd never raised an investment fund before. So I was trying to learn as much as possible. And um, my wife uh, was really excited about this event that she heard about. It was called uh, the Unreasonable Institute. And it ended up being a business accelerator for entrepreneurs whose ideas and businesses were going to change the world. Um, so think of like a, a car wash business um, that employs adults who are autistic. Um, repeatable tasks, you know, a lot of adults that are autistic, they don't, you know, like, what, are the, what do you do now that your autistic son or daughter is becoming an adult? You need to give them purpose and find, you know, opportunities for them to be busy and contribute to society. So things like mm -hmm. that. And I'm sitting in the audience with my wife. And I just had that moment. I was like, this is what the cannabis industry needs. I found it, right? This is, this is, you know, it's a startup. Everything's a startup. Uh, we need infrastructure. We need to bring people together. We need to support founders. And this is, this is the genius idea to bring to the cannabis industry. I ended up sitting in the, in the auditorium, writing the business plan on my phone. And my wife's like, what are you doing? Like, why aren't you paying attention? I was like, no, 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 I'm, I'll, I'll show you in a I've minute. Caught, I've caught the lightning so here. I, I need to, I need to get this down. Totally. Totally. And that's the thing. Like when you feel the inspiration, you need to just, you know, uh, give, give to it, right. Let it take you. And so I did that and I still have it on my phone in my notes section is the business plan for canopy Boulder, which I wrote in that auditorium. And, um, it's, I've go back every once in a while and look at it. And I'm like, yeah, that was what we did. Um, little tweaks here and there. That sounds frameworthy. 
Just put that yeah. up, uh, hang it up, hang it up in the, <laughs> hang it up in the office. I like that. And just in the old phone too. Okay. So you've, you've captured the lightning um, and you're writing this out. Like what is next? Like we're launching, we're good to go. The energy, how do you focus that and, and start executing? Well, I knew we needed a partnership um, that, you know, we wanted to go long. Uh, we want to have a big impact. And I knew that we couldn't just do that. Like me and another guy who was, you know, somewhat or somewhat part of it, but had another business to run. So I, um, you know, I'd been part of a investor forum in the nutrition industry. And I sort of saw how that brought people together, uh, investors, entrepreneurs, and in the cannabis industry, that was the ArcView group. So um, one of the first events I went to, um, I met Troy Dayton, mm-hmm. who is the CEO and founder of ArcView. And at that point, like it was still a, a really good idea that hadn't really caught steam. And so, um, you know, was like, you know, sort of starting to architect the the business and the partnership and seeing how that made sense. They were an investor forum. We'd be a business accelerator. We'd come together very complimentary. We didn't want to be competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, um, we became members. I volunteered to be a mentor. My teams would win uh, the competitions, the pitch competition, um, had a couple of big successes and, um, even had one founder in that crazy moment. Um, he, he had horrible stage fright and I've been working with him, uh, for his, on his deck. And he was in the back of the room. I was up there announcing and, you know, to introduce him and, and call him up. And he was like, I can't do it. I mean, I could see it in his face. So I said, you know, I remember being like, all right, well, you know, the founder, uh, you know, whatever his name is, he's not able to join us today. So I'm going to give the presentation. And I went through the presentation and, um, and like, everybody was like, yay, good job. And, um, he actually ended up raising some money, (laughs) building a contract manufacturing business out of it. Um, but it was, it was, that was like one of those moments where, then when I went to go, um, I realized that we wanted to partner with ArcView. I called up Troy and said, hey, I'm going to be in San Francisco on Thursday. It was like a Monday. He was like, I, I was just wondering if we can grab dinner. Uh, I can buy you a beer and I want to run something by you. And he's like, oh, that's great. I was just about to call you. I wanted to talk about something. I'll, how about you know we get meet here or here on Thursday? And I was like, great. Hung up the phone and I was like, okay, I got to get a plane ticket because I'm going to San Francisco. And, you know, it was just sort of like, you know, and that that lightning strike is again of like you guys were both thinking of each other. Let's 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 get this going. This is too so, this is too hot yeah. to walk away from or to yeah, dismiss. So I, I go to San Francisco. I actually eat with meet with Emily and Morgan Paxia Poseidon, the group that I'm partnered up with now, and was pitching them this idea of the accelerator, and they loved it. They wanted to work together, and I was like, okay, this is awesome. And then I go walk across town to meet Troy, and um, we're sitting down. We hadn't even finished our first beer, and uh, and he's like. He, he's like, um, what, how'd it go? I was like, Hey, I've got this idea I want to talk to you about. And he's like, great. Actually, I want to talk to you about something. We've been thinking about starting a business accelerator at Canopy at uh, ArcView. And every time we think about it, your name comes up. And so I wanted to talk to you about that. And I was like, hold on one second. I reached down in my briefcase, pulled out the, you know, the pitch deck and put it in front of him and said, I've been thinking about this too. And he sort of flipped through it and he was like, whoa, you know, we had this like moment You're right there. Yeah. Yeah. That- yeah. So it, it was just, you know, again, taking a risk, um, you know, uh, getting out of the comfort zone uh, and timing was perfect. Um, the idea was good. Um, and so uh, that kicked off 
uh, a partnership with ArcView that lasted, gosh, like six or seven years wow. to help launch Canopy Boulder. Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, it obviously it's been very successful. I know we touched on at the beginning of the show, but like 130 investments, more mm-hmm. than a handful of very successful ones. Yeah. What was it like? Okay. Obviously you guys got the synergies going, you guys are reganing, you guys are just enjoying things. What did that next, you know, what was some of that seven years, you know, that you went through? Yeah. Cause I mean, the cannabis market has changed dramatically in those seven years. It's almost yeah. been like dog years. It's almost been yeah. 50 years. What is that, you know, what was some of those adventures that you had to go through as, as, as you're launching that up as a, as a rising fund manager? Yeah, well, I mean, it was a lot. Um, it was a whole lot. And I, you know, I think about it and I loved every minute of it, but it was really exhausting. I mean, everybody loves the idea of a business accelerator, you know, that's in business. They like the idea of, you know, working with entrepreneurs or you're an entrepreneur having a place to plug in. You know, it seems really exciting. You get a lot of variety. The Ehrlich Bachman, you know, like <laughs> guys living, guys living a great life. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's what one of my buddies, he still, every time he sees me, he calls me Ehrlich. Um, but uh, it was exhausting. I mean, if you think that you need to uh, find 10 companies twice a year, so 20 companies a year, um, identify good ideas, teams, um, negotiate investments, bring them in, run a successful program so they think it's worth it and it is worth it. Um, help them raise more money and kind of continue on and then start it over again. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was incredibly exhausting. Um, it was a lot of fun, but boy, um, it definitely tires you out. Um, so, you know, and we kept raising larger and larger funds. Um, we kept getting, you know, more and more high quality companies and founders, which is really compelling. But, um, you know, we, again, we, we, we had 115 companies come through and um, that's incredible experience for anybody to see almost every nook and cranny of the industry and, and really go deep on it. Yeah. So it gave me this like incredible broad and deep um, and now, you know, review of the cannabis industry. And I'm not an expert in everything, but for mm-hmm. most areas, um, you know, there's a real intuitive sense of what is right and what is wrong uh, with a business idea and a team. As you evolve throughout that, obviously you got better at, hopefully picking, you know, seeing trends and patterns and, you know, like what you wanted to focus on, you know, now that you're seven years in and and we'll get to this in a bit, like, you know, where you're going to next, what are some of those high level patterns that, that you have, you have seen throughout over time as, as things evolved as well? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the cannabis industry is kind of unique in, in a couple of ways, <laughs> a couple, um, with, with technology startups, one thing that we saw evolve was that um, businesses and technology companies or service providers, ancillary companies that can tie their the, the money that a licensed company or like a dispensary will pay for their software or their service directly to an ROI in new sales. Um, that makes it really a lot easier for the business to be brought on as a vendor. Uh, spe- and it's primarily because of IRS code 280E. Because you can't deduct those a lot of those expenses for software and things from your your tax bill, um, you need to make sure that they generate revenue for the business, or they generate you know increased profit dramatically. If it's just a good idea that like yeah it works in another industry, but it's expensive in another industry, bringing it to the cannabis industry might be harder than you think if you can't like directly tie that to uh, revenue growth 
or um, a, a very dramatic change in profitability. So that's one thing. Um, mm-hmm. Higher level, I mean, back when we started, I mean, the, you know, a lot of the operators had no clue what the right thing to do was when designing their dispensary or um, building out their grow. I mean, they were just trying to meet demand, keep mm-hmm. products on the shelf, you know, um, keep producing products, stay compliant. Walk before um, you run. Yeah. But now so many things are figured out and there's systems and best practices. And um, but a lot of that didn't exist before. So what's so, happening now is they can, those businesses can think about like they're, they were just constantly working, you know, like in the business and now they can work on the business, right? They mm-hmm. can look and refine things as opposed to just doing the basics to stay alive. Hey everyone, it's Brian Weber here. Just wanted to pause for a quick second and thank you all for listening and all the positive feedback and support we've received about the show. It means a great deal. I need to ask you for a small favor that won't cost anything but a minute of your time, and it would mean the world to this show and our guests. Somehow, this show about the founders of the modern cannabis industry is not showing up when searching for cannabis or entrepreneur in many of the podcast platforms. That's obviously a big problem for a show about cannabis entrepreneurs. One of the things we can do to solve that is with reviews. Giving just one minute of your time to submit a review of this show using the words cannabis and entrepreneur in it will help us get found so we can keep sharing these amazing founders' journeys. For new listeners, I really hope you consider this after enjoying this show. For our continuing listeners, if you can do this right now, I'd greatly appreciate it. Go ahead, hit pause. I'll wait right here. Thank you. You know, Canopy Boulder is an incredible experience and um, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I feel like we delivered on our vision and we're looking for a next managing director uh, to come in and raise that next fund and run the accelerator classes. We figured out so many things on how to do it well. Um, we're looking for that next partner. Um, but, you know, it had been six, seven years. Uh, mm-hmm. I was getting restless and wanted to do something different. Um, so I, you know, had a conversation with Emily and Morgan at Poseidon and a couple of conversations and, you know, the timing was right. You know, we had talked about working together and partnering up back in 2014 when we first met and uh, we kind of shared that, you know, vision of investing and being active and helpful and positive and doing things that moves the industry forward in a, not just financial way, but also kind of a ethos mm-hmm. of being doing good um, for society. So, uh, the timing was right, and we decided to partner up on a new fund, which we call the Poseidon Garden Fund. Which Why the is, Garden uh, Fund? Why'd you choose that name? Well, it's like, you know, when you're gardening, you do a lot of preparation work, right? And you prepare the soil, and you make sure you pick the right seeds. Maybe you have them, in, you know, like the, the, the shoots, the sprouts uh, indoors. Then when it's time you, to really go, you get into the garden. And, um, you do the work needed to grow incredible things. And so, you know, a canopy boulder, the idea of a canopy really made a lot of sense because it was sort of a safe place for people to come and be together under, uh, you know, uh, all together when there's sort of crazy things going all around you. And with the garden, it's more about growth, right? Mm -hmm. It's more about taking something that's already created and then figuring out a way to turn it into something, you know, that meets your vision. 
right? So we're focused on businesses that would, you know, like be graduating from a canopy boulder cohort that have some traction and some, they've proven out the business a little bit. And they're really thinking about scaling and going from a little shoot to a full size plan and uh, being, you know, the greatest uh, out there. So um, it made sense to sort of call it the garden fund. I like that. I like that analogy right there. And your focus for these groups is you're, you're post angel stage, but you're really more of a pre-series A. Um, mm-hmm. Is that like your 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 sweet spot on that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. it's um, it's interesting because you know there, there's this. We love that stage, and we love working with founders and that that moment in a company's evolution or phase in a company's evolution. But at the same time, um, you know, the last sort of vintage of venture capital funds in the cannabis industry, and there were like seven, eight, or nine of them. They, they they were all focused on Series A, mm-hmm. and so when you look at the data um, valuations between sort of seed, late seed, and then Series A, the difference is massive. Mm-hmm. You know, your technology company in seed is going to be five to ten million dollar pre money valuation, sometimes two and a half to seven and a half. Series A valuations are thirty to fifty million. It's just like this. And, and I think part of it is because there's so much capital and so much demand for the best companies that prices just get yeah, pumped up. They got kind of blown out there. Yeah. And also the, like, the risk premium is less. It's still very much there, but like it is a proven model that is scaling and we need some fuel for this. Um, yeah. So, so that is definitely there as well. So that's exciting. Um, yeah. You know, and we're going to get to the, your contact info at the end, but like, I know you're definitely leaning in and focusing on this. And I would definitely recommend the Canna Insider uh, interview with uh, with Matt Kind that you did recently um, to, to have a little bit more of a deeper dive of what you're looking to do right there. But I mean, this has been a tremendous founder's journey that we've had today, but I do have a few closing questions All uh, right. just to get a little bit more knowing about you. Um, you know, what is your North Star? What do you do? you know, like, what do you do when you have a decision that's hard to make? How do you, how do you find that? Well, I mean, I definitely have my mentors and advisors that I'll, I'll speak to. Um, I like to, you know, I feel like, you know, you need to get out away, out away from the computers and the machinery and your normal day to day. So I do a lot of, um, almost every day I'm out exercising and I go, um, on my bike into the foothills around Boulder and ride and click to clear my head and to think about things. And no, I'm not talking about little rides here. We're talking about sometimes it's like hundred miles or like 10 hours. And, you know, it's like, I've seen you know, your Instagram. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Like vision quest kind of, uh, adventures. Um, and I've always felt like some of my best thinking comes when I'm, you know, not, focused on the question or the problem that needs solved, but like the trail or the road or the pacing. And, um, it like frees up your, like a part of your brain that allows you to come up with solutions. So, so for my North star, you know, I, I always feel very strongly, if you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of anyone else. So, you know, I definitely prioritize, you know, the thing that helps me be a better person and a thing that helps me make better decisions, which is exercise yeah. and getting out and after it early in the morning. And, um, you know, I guess that's just my way. That's a very common one, but yeah, um, uh, definitely, uh, definitely, definitely get that one. Um, we probably have already answered this one, but like, how do you keep your sanity and your focus, which I'm assuming is the same? Yeah. 
Yeah, really, it is. And I, I encourage, I love to take meetings, hiking in Boulder or going for a walk, like getting outside um, and away from screens. It, it, I, think, I think it's sort of, whether it's the vitamin D or the fresh air or whatever, um, that is the thing that, yeah, and the endorphins, it really, I feel so much better. I mean, yeah. you know, every morning after I come back, I'm sharper, I got more energy and it's hard. It's so hard. I'm not a morning person. But it's habits, right? Habits, uh, once you start forming them, you really commit to them, then they become natural and you find yourself waking up early naturally and going to bed earlier. You're living a better of a healthier life. Um, it is. But it's really the performance. If I, I mean, I probably wouldn't do it if I didn't see uh, increase in productivity and just, you know, being sharper yeah. throughout the yeah. day. That makes a lot of sense. Um, cannabis or non-cannabis founders that you've, that inspire you that you look up to that you know you try to you try to emulate in some ways and i'm sure you have a wealth of a vast amount of people that you have but like maybe like maybe two well one of them was uh one of my first uh bosses and mm -hmm. he was like the troublesome one of the four uh founders i worked for at that boutique investment bank and he was the rainmaker um that was his role and he is uh incredibly charismatic he works incredibly hard. Um, he builds relationships with people. He's got a real authenticity to him. And I got to sort of be an understudy uh, with him. And, you know, his name? He, he has a, his name's Tom Arts. Okay. And uh, he has incredible, like I always think of people, their whole spectrum, right? He has a slice that shines incredibly bright and it, it overshadows whatever shortcomings or weaknesses he has elsewhere. And he's just one of those people that people want to work with. They want to help. They want to be a part of whatever he's doing. And um, I got to learn, like have a front row seat at seeing him uh, navigate relationships and build trust um, and actually do really good for a lot of people. So that was, that would be one. That's a good one. Um, yeah, right, off the, right off the gate too. Yeah. Tom Arts. Um, anybody who's listening from the natural products industry knows Tom. Mm -hmm. Um, and the second one is very simple and very clear. And it was the first answer whenever I saw this question that you, you asked me was, mm -hmm. is it's Emily, yeah. Emily Paxtia, you know, like it's incredible to work with her. Um, she, no one gave her a hand up, you know, she was a first time fund manager. She's a female in the cannabis industry. She's a risk taker. She's incredibly intelligent. She has an incredible positivity and knowledge and poise uh, a communication style. Like, I mean, it, you know, I didn't know, um, how strong of a leader and, uh, she was until, I mean, I had an idea and I knew I wanted to work with her and her brother, Morgan, who's equally impressive, but she's overcome real challenge mm -hmm. in her life. And, um, I encourage people to listen to her podcast yeah. that you did with her because yep. uh, that speaks to who Emily truly is and you'll get it. I hopefully it, but if you don't just spend time with her um, and it's, it's been incredible working with her and to see um, what's really possible. Uh, just the amount of positivity they bring uh, every day is, uh, you know, really special. 
yeah, I, I felt a great connection with her and I've listened to her on a number of different podcasts as well. And she's been just been wonderful to follow. A really very smart, oh, yeah. accurate voice in the industry. So that was actually a very formative day for you. You had lunch and dinner with with two people that are gonna change the <laughs> of your life. <laughs> yeah. And I and I walked, I remember I walked almost all the way across San Francisco. It was a beautiful day in San Francisco. And uh, I, I must have walked like three miles or something across San Francisco going from meeting to meeting, but, uh, totally you know, it was it. a really fun time. We're yeah. all entrepreneurs starting up in this crazy cannabis industry at the time. So I'll always feel a real kinship with Troy, Morgan, Emily, yeah. and they will always be on my short list. That's, that's people a, that, I want to stay close to. That's amazing. I appreciate you sharing those. Um, and then real quick, last two questions, real simple ones. Um, are there any wisdom about the cannabis industry right now? I mean, we're coming out of COVID, you know, I usually don't ask many time. I really don't ask any time sensitive questions, but mm-hmm. you know, we're spring 2021. Now we're coming out of COVID, you know, like we've gone through that attrition that has, has forced that. And like, you know, where are we at right now? What are, what are some things that you've amassed through your now seven, I guess, years in the industry that if you had to say one thing, like what's on your brain currently about the cannabis industry? Gosh, you know, I think the thing that I'm thinking about a lot that uh, not a lot of people are talking about is the, you know, big bump we had in growth in 2020. I mean, sales were up like nearly 40%, four zero Mm -hmm. last year, 2020 over 2019, amidst the pandemic. You know, in Colorado, sales were up 20, 25%. We had no tourism. Um, The consumer adoption of cannabis, like, New consumers, uh, I think we'll look back at 2020 and 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 there'll be a lot that will be said about 2020 in the future. But one thing that certainly should be said is that it was a uh, an adoption moment for the consumers in of cannabis. It accelerated from yeah. illegal from illegal to yeah, essential. The legal, the legal market, you know, that kind of growth just doesn't happen. Um, so it's unlocking consumers, and uh, they felt comfortable. Uh, becoming new consumers. And I think that will be a legacy watershed moment on the industry's evolution. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, and last one, easy one. You got people that want to connect with you. They got a great business idea. They're looking for funding. Uh, they got some money and they want to put it to work. Um, where, what's the, what is the best way for people to connect with you? You know, the best way for people to connect with me is to find me on LinkedIn. Honestly, because I'm on it all the time. I'm scanning people, you know, I'm doing deep research on people and their backgrounds. I love LinkedIn. So my last name is spelled R-E-A, first name Patrick. And so I'm pretty easy to find there and I'm uh, very responsive. So I recommend people go find me on LinkedIn. You know, if you want to know if we have something in common, you know, I've got a pretty robust profile there. You can find our touch points and I always love to meet new people and uh, see where we have some connections or know the same people. That's really um, awesome for me. Well, it's, 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 it's been a pleasure having you here. I'm glad we got to give you the full uh, founder's journey experience on this show. Um, and, you know, good luck with the, good luck with the garden fund. And I'm, I'm sure we'll touch base in a few years and we'll see where that exit goes and all the good things. So I wish you the, wish you the best success. Thanks for sharing your, your story. Yeah, you ask questions I've never been asked before. So thanks uh, for giving me the opportunity to share. And I, uh, I really enjoyed my time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you for listening to Lit Up, a founder's journey, a Lit Up media production. I'm your host, Brian Weber. This episode was produced by Anthony Morgola, 
edited by Brian Weber and Anthony Margola, theme music by Justin Cruz of Cruise Control Music. Links from today's episodes are available in our show notes. If you received any value from our show, please take a second and leave a review in iTunes and share with your friends and colleagues. It really helps. You can connect with us on our website, litupfounders.com, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at litupfounders, and on LinkedIn at litupmedia. Finally, our email address is feedback at litupmedia.com. Thanks for listening and sharing the journey.